This is an ABC podcast. This is The Screen Show on ABC Radio National. Hello, I'm Jason DeRosso. Welcome. Coming up on today's show, the Australian cinematographer Denson Baker will be talking about walking in the footsteps of some of his heroes and working at the legendary Cinecittà Studios in Rome on the TV series Domina, which is, of course, set in ancient Rome. But first up, I speak to the legendary, inimitable and multi-talented Julie Delpy, who, uh, as an actor, first performed in front of the camera for Godard in Detective back in 1985 before going on to have an amazing career as a performer, working with the likes of Krzysztof Kieslowski, Leos Carax and uh, Richard Linklater, of course whose Before Sunrise trilogy seemed to crystallise the zeitgeist of a generation who fell in love on the backpacking trails of their 20s but found the transition into middle age a rocky one. Delpy's varied acting career even encompasses a role for Marvel. But behind the camera, Delpy is a writer, director and producer in her own right. She's made several feature films so far and the latest one is out next week in Australia. It's called My Zoe and it's the story of a Berlin-based couple on the brink of divorce. Delpy plays Isabel, a French medical researcher, and Richard Armitage plays James, her English husband. As they acrimoniously decouple, much of their fighting centres on the custody of their 10-year-old daughter, Zoe. Then the unspeakable happens, an accident that puts Zoe in a hospital bed on life support. The recriminations start, the guilt and the accusations. But what unfolds as a well-staged realist tragedy takes a bold turn into an almost science fiction third act when Isabel travels to meet a maverick doctor, played by Daniel Brühl, who represents both a figure of hope and a kind of bogeyman symbol of ethically compromised, cutting-edge medical research. What would you do to reverse a tragedy involving your own child? In this interview, Julie Delpy will discuss the film and its dilemmas. She'll also talk about feminism and the Me Too movement. Remember, she was one of the first outspoken women to criticise the film industry in both France and the US. You'll want to stick around for this, but first, here's a clip from my Zoe. Hello. What's her name? Hold. Zoe. Louise. Seven. Are you a mother? Yes. Zoe. Zoe, can you hear me? Any history of illness? No, nothing serious. Allergies? No. When did she lose consciousness? Uh, she was like this uh, this morning. She was kind of sleepy last night. You? Did she ever lose consciousness in the past? No. Do you have any painkillers, sleeping pills around the house? Sleeping pills, but they're locked up. Yep. Miss Lewis. Fertig? What's happening? Who was with her yesterday? Sir, were you with your daughter? I'm not her father. Where are we going? We're going to the uni clinic. James, we we need to go to the emergency room with Zoe. She's not well. I, I don't know. No one knows yet. Please meet me at the uni clinic. Yes. Well, Julie Delpy, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you know, I don't know where to start with this film because I'm, I'm very conscious of spoilers, so maybe you can guide me on that. But I will say that what really excited me with this film, uh, or one of the things, is that the way you sort of pull back from conventional ideas about depictions of female trauma, I suppose you yeah. could say, and you pull back from a kind of, I don't know, tragedy voyeurism 
in, I guess, the final act, which I don't, as I say, I don't want to spoil for people, but I'm wondering more broadly, was this in some way a kind of almost a feminist statement really against the conventions of, you know, the way that we depict female trauma and grief? Well, yeah, I think, you know, women are expected to react a certain way to trauma and and kind of stay in the position of a victim. Uh, and in a way, you know, the, the film is in a way is, is it's interesting because if you have a female who's a murderer, it's more accepting, acceptable than what she does, which is like she refuses to be a victim, but she's not either you know, um, a witch, you know, or, or a terrible person. She's doing, some, she's doing something that involves a very personal choice, right? Ethically wrong or right, that's another story. But she, she makes her own decision and she goes against what's expected of women and what has been expected of women for centuries, which is to accept uh, this uh, terrible situation she's in. But she refuses it at many levels. She refuses it in a relationship she was in. So she, she escapes that and she escapes also the, the grieving of the, you know, the tragedy that happens to her. She's also going, going uh, it, I would say not going against it. She, she goes beyond it, you know. She takes hold of the situation really in a way that's, that has a lot of agency, as we say. You know, it's, it's, um, she grabs the reins of it. Grief is like up until that point, and for a moment, it's this wild horse, really, and it's you know taking its course. But then she grabs the reins and goes off, decides to do something sort of constructive. And it just reminded me. I was thinking about this and thinking about at least in the tradition of Western art. You know, you've got the Pietà, and you've got all these yeah. images of women, and especially mothers in these really? traumatic situations in grief. And this is, and that was what was quite exciting. Uh, one of the things that was quite exciting, I was watching this film going, where the hell is she going with this? I know. <laughs> and I know, and it might be uh, offensive to some people, I, I have to recognize. I mean, but what's the point of doing something that's been done a thousand times and doing it again? You know, I, I feel like, why not explore this possibility, even if she could seem as unlikable as a character, it could be offensive to some people. I think it's interesting to go places that, you know, especially emotionally that haven't been done. And I think the third act, the, the, what happens in the third act has been kind of explored in a very crazy sci-fi dystopian way, but never in an emotional, real kind of way that could be a reality, you know? Uh, and I think that's that's really uh, could be shocking to some people. It's I'm not saying she's, you know, I'm not... Showing something that's dangerous to humanity, or you know, what if it's not such a big deal, you know, and especially if it's one person's choice and, and a very specific person that makes this decision. And it is very, in a way, controversial. And I realized after I did the film, oh wow, it's going further than I thought, in a way. Uh, but I wanted to explore that. For me, it was really interesting because it's uh, it's different, and in fact, it is very feminist, but in a way that's you know, that's not traditional feminism either. You know, it's it's because I'm not a traditional feminist because I was raised by two feminists. So therefore I'm already on, you know, not that I'm at the next level, but in a way, you know, being raised by, by a mother who was a feminist and a father, especially who was a, the biggest feminist I've ever met. 
um, it it kind of turns you into you know whatever whatever I'm I'm looking for in you know answers, which is also that women are not perfect either. You know, as a feminist, I'm not I'm never saying oh if the world was ruled by women it would be a better place. I don't know. <laughs> it's you, there is a line in this film which I really found very interesting, given that Julie Delpy, you're playing the lead character in this film that you've written and directed, um, and so you can't help but sort of wonder about the autobiographical nuances or the aspect um it's where the um the mother of your character in the film says i shouldn't have raised you in france because you don't believe in anything and i thought (laughs) yeah that's a little that's a very interesting line julie delpy tell me about that line um yeah (laughs) you know there's something about france that you know sometimes like you know i feel like as as a french american women like I'm, I'm half French, half American. And, um, you know, sometimes I see my American friends there. They're a little more ready to believe in something than I would be. You know, there's a, there's a big kind of current in France of complete cynicism. You know, we don't believe, you know, when you're not, you know, when, if you're not religious, you don't believe in the soul, you don't believe in this and that, and you don't believe in, you know, magic or, or, you know, uh, a parallel therapy or, you know, but we believe, but we don't meaning like, especially from the mom, I think what she means is that you don't believe in the impossible. You don't believe in, you know, that some people can recover from things, you know, you, it, it, there's something in France a bit cynical, you know, that I think Americans are not as cynical, strangely enough, <laughs> you know, maybe after four years of Trump, maybe, but you know, not, not <laughs> they're not as cynical as fr- French people can be extremely cynical. Well, I'm, I'm wondering, and uh, this is a little bit of a detour that I was going to ask you about anyway, but it's a good time to maybe ask you about it in, in the course of this interview. Where do you see that national characteristic, I guess the American national characteristic of kind of tending to want to believe and so forth? Where, where do you see that in the context of the Me Too movement? Do you think because I'm wondering how much has actually changed, how much will change, yada, yada, yada. And and do you think there's a slight naivety there in America about the possibility for change? Well, actually, it's much, Me Too is much stronger in America than it is in France. Uh, in France, it's still a little bit kind of like in between. Like, I think, you know, the politic of authors uh, is so strong. Like, if you're a great filmmaker, you're pretty much immune to anything, uh, which I don't think is right either. You know, I think it's good to find, I mean, I I think America is one way very extreme on that level, but, you know, France is not enough on that level. So I think finding the the right in between would be good, but I don't think America is not naive about like, uh, I I don't know what's happening with me too. The truth is, you know, I think it's really good it happened because it was, centuries of terrible th- or decades of terrible things happening i mean when my son <laughs> when i'm driving with my son he's he's asking me questions like was marilyn monroe raped i'm like ah, i probably was was ava gardner raped because he's obsessed with all the older actresses i was like well i'm afraid so was uh, you know uh, all of i mean like then we saw a documentary on on natalie wood and she was with you know whatever nicholas ray and you know, she was 15 years old. Like you hear all those stories and my son is like, my God, it's like a nightmare. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I grew up in this world, you know, 
And uh, I had to fight and be, you know, really strong about it. And luckily my parents were both actors. So I was already, I, I already, I, I was not naive going in. You know what I mean? Like I knew. So I was very lucky with that because I was not like, if someone invited me to his hotel room, there was no way I was going to go. But, <laughs> you know, or unless I really wanted to go, but, you know, but that was not my thing. So anyway, but, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Me Too in France is not completely there yet. And in America, I feel like, you know, sometimes it's weird, like, okay, they got Harvey, right? Weinstein. He's like, but to me, Harvey is just almost, um, yes, he's responsible for a lot of terrible thing and he should be punished, right? But he's almost uh, like, uh, you know, the tip of the iceberg, really, because I think he was just, he was using a system that was already in place, right? So uh, the system of making people want to desire you and always playing that game of flirting, which I couldn't stand, you know, uh, all that stuff, which is probably why I became a director. In a way, it's a blessing for me because I, I kind of went away from that just because I couldn't deal with it. You know, I couldn't deal with that stuff. But it's true that he was just the, the product of a system. He was not Mr. Bad Guy and that's all there is on earth is just Harvey Weinstein. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I do know what you mean. And if you speak to anyone older than me, especially, you know, in the next, the previous generation who's been around the industry, especially critics and so forth, they all have stories about the greats. And I won't sort of name names now and, and, no, no. and you know, not, you know, it's not even, but, you know, going right back to the silent era, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, no, you know, I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, it's so like, I it's know like what Hollywood, you're saying. It seems Hollywood was built on that, basically. Yeah, the casting <laughs> yeah. couch, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I'm talking to Julie Delpy, the writer, director, actor, and producer as well. I'm, yes. I'm sure you produce. Yeah, yeah, part of it. Yeah, a little part of it, yeah. And we're talking about her latest film, which is called My Zoe, and it deals with uh, a very tragic situation. Uh, a couple who are on the brink of divorce. They're living in Berlin. She's French. He's English. They have a daughter, and the unspeakable happens to the daughter. It is um, a very well-acted film. And, Julie, I want to ask you about this couple and living in Berlin and why you chose Berlin, first of all, as a city to base this couple. What does it represent, do you think? Well, first of all, I wanted, I wasn't sure it was going to be Berlin from the beginning, but I wanted two people that are not in the city, they're born and kind of are, they're both kind of, uh, you know, they don't have real family connection there. They're just, they're kind of newcomers. I always feel more interested in people like that, maybe because I've spent my life being that, you know, moving from place to place all the time. So I kind of relate to this kind of a, feeling of like, you know, if I need someone to watch my son, it's going to be a stranger, right? Which I find it, which is unusual for me, because the truth is, I was raised in France by my grandmothers, basically, when my parents were working. So very strong family connection. But I ended up moving abroad and having to relay on strangers to take care of my kid, you know, and, and it's a very strange feeling. I mean, it's fine, everyone does it. But there's a side of me that's always a little bit kind of like, you know, what if something happens? So kind of the film came from many things, first of all, but also of the reality of my life in a way that is, you know, the anxiety that you can have in leaving a child with someone you don't know that well, you know? And Richard Armitage is great as this. I mean, I mean, there are, there are wonderful, wonderful bickering couple 
these two and you don't yeah i mean they they they, they you know when love is gone and this kind of hatred replaces i mean it's almost more than bickering i think they kind of hate each other no you're right you're right of course it is much more than bickering and you've chosen to not often you've chosen not to get um this is not a film that embraces the emotion and gets really up close it's a film that does the opposite tell me about that directing directing choice you know, I'm a very emotional person. I'm very in the moment, emotional and stuff. And in a way, I wanted uh, the character of Isabel to be very different from me because in a way, the direction and the decision she makes is much more, you know, uh, it, it's much more thought and less passionate than I would be, for example. I mean, I would be, you know, it would be like a, a mess a mess with me if something like that would happen it would be way messier <laughs> um because that, that's who i am but i wanted to really capture something and someone who's who's a bit more less emotional first of all and who who doesn't cry in front of people she 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 barely shows her emotion to her ex you know she she never cries in front of him she cries when she's alone in a bathroom on the floor but she doesn't cry and a mother but that's it you know she doesn't really expresses her emotion that easily you know and and i really wanted someone like that because in a way i know people like that and they have always fascinated me because it's not a you know a, a, emotional like diarrhea you know yeah, of, yeah. of emotions it's kind of like much more tense and I feel they're suffering and even though sometimes more than other people like people that can't let it out completely you know I, I almost feel sorry because it's it's such a that means all the pain goes in you know and it's it's interesting to to play a character like this and to explore a character like this. You know, is this also why you choose at certain points to go long? You have a, you, you cut to long shots. Yeah, I love having moments where you're actually far away from people, so you're not too much in their face. And there's entire scenes that are behind glass. You even have layers where you you know for certain fights you're away from them behind glass behind, you know, almost you you almost as if I wanted to sometimes do scenes where we're behind a wall, you know, um, and we're listening to them, you know, just also to not be something, you know, where you feel the pain, you know, uh, but, but where you're like a witnessing the pain kind of thing. Also no music, which is also a very specific choice I made. So it's not, you're not being told how to feel, which is really interesting because some people it irritates them because they want to be told how to feel and they want to be told it's the right moment to cry. But for me, it's the opposite. And it's funny because people really react to this film the way they should truly be reacting. Some people are completely frozen. Some people are crying. Some people are angry (laughs) because I don't actually kind of give them a direction of how to feel, you know? No, you're quite right. And and this is going back to Richard Armitage's um, performance as the, the English, and he's very English. I don't know, there's something about him as a husband. He is, if you had to cast an English, a middle-aged English guy who a French woman has married and then fallen out of love with or whatever, you know, not because of him yeah. or we don't actually know. It's sort of a bit ambiguous. He's the guy. He's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when he wears that slightly large-necked T-shirt underneath his blazer, he just looks so English. I don't know why. It's the... The pink skin against the sun, or something. Anyway, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. No, no, he has a very light skin, and he's kind of dark reddish hair. You know, um, yeah, yeah. He's very British, very you British. Know, he was I, perfect, and he really nailed it. Because I personally think it's one of the hardest character to pull off his 
this very unlikable kind of cruel man at times. Yeah, but is he the villain or not? I don't know. By the end, you know, this is the thing. It's like Daniel Brühl who plays this scientist who appears in the third act. Again, I'm loving Daniel Brühl more and more as his career progresses. But here, again, fantastic because so ambiguous. He could be a villain, but he's not maybe. And you really have to work out what you think about these people ethically. About these people, yeah, exactly. I wanted to let it be... You know, for me, it's it's a personal choice that I made because when I watch a movie and there's dramatic music where I should be crying, it shuts me off because I do not like to be told. And maybe that's why I like films from the 60s and 70s, like, you know, like Bergman and, you know, like scenes from a marriage and stuff, because it's kind of like you're presented with something and you have to make your own feelings towards these scenes, you know? And to me, that's essential. But, you know, we're more and more in a society that tells us how to feel and how to think. And freedom is becoming less and less of a possible, you know, it's, it's you, you're more and more in that machine of like, you, you're, you're consuming, but you're being consumed as well in a way, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and so your emotions are being consumed. And so, so it's kind of like to let people decide for themselves, you know? And and for me, that was essential. And my character is not very likable many times. She's so determined that it makes her unbearable at times. You know, even for myself, I was like, oh my God, I'm saying those things like that are so harsh for a human being to say about her own daughter, you know? Like she's okay. I mean, she she goes very far with that. You know, it was interesting to explore this, uh, you know, form of realism, you know? It's interesting that um, when you say we're we sort of more and more told what to think and how to think, I kind of see that politically to a degree. It reminds, and I'm reminded of that when I've spoken to the the generation before before us in France, and I'm talking about, and she's on the record, so I don't think she'll mind me quoting her. Fanny Ardant said something. Yeah. I, I asked her about the situation and women and so forth, and she was just, and you you know her, I'm sure, she was just resolutely she kind of had this free-spirited, individualistic take on what she was going to believe politically and what she would stand for and kind of didn't want to be part of, you know, anyone's gang or anyone's club. or any- Now, in reality, that may be actually different, but there was this strong sort of sense of, I'm going to think what I want to think about any given issue. I'm not going to join a movement necessarily. I'm not going to, you know, and I thought I, I get that a little bit from that older generation of Europeans and there may be a problem with that. That, that may be a problematic way to think, well, I think but I get that spirit, from them. I think there was a much more much more freedom. I think the, the, the post-60s kind of uh, generation was much more like my dad, when I say he's an anarchist, I mean it in an intellectual way. Not He's not blowing up places. He's not, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's got, you know, the idea of anarchism as in no God, no master kind of thing. Like no one, gover- that's why he was never part of any political group, any political current, even the ones that he agreed with, he wouldn't be part of. Even the anarchist groups, he wouldn't be part of because that's that was the, too didactic for him. Like, you know, a complete freedom of his own. He's his own master and his own God. And that's it. And that's how he thinks, you know. Of course, he respects the rules and 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 he should. And he's fine with it, you know. And he has no problem respecting the law and all that stuff. But his way of thinking is his own. And 
when I talk about anarchism, I, I think in a, in an intellectual way. I don't think yeah, about yeah, yeah. You know, blowing but, up the whatever. You know what I mean? I think I do, about I intellectually. You know, it's it's just a form of thinking that's very free. And it's true that I don't want to be part of any group, even if, you know, for example, for me too, I was one of the first person to speak up yes, 20 I remember. years ago. Yes, you know, yes. I mean, of course, 20 years ago, everyone, including the press, was like, you're so moralistic, you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but you know, it's like, it's like, you know, yes, I was the first person to speak about those things, you know, um, uh, even when I was in my teens and I was horrified at what was going on. But, you know, uh, would I be part of the movement now? Yes, I am part of it because I was always part of it in a way, you know. Uh, I didn't become Me Too three years ago. I was always Me Too. You know, so it's a different kind of, uh, you know, kind of thing. And also I've lived by those beliefs, meaning I never played the game from the beginning. I never kind of kind of give a hint to people that they had a chance with me unless there was some cute guy that I wanted to. But that's sure. another story. That's another but I mean, story. for power, like I never like powerful men and me. It was clear, like I was clear. Of course, it cost me a lot of parts, a lot of opportunities, but it was a choice I made and I was always clear. So for me, I don't even really have to be part of anything because I've been that from the day I was born. So, you know, I think that's all I can say. Like I'm really, truly a feminist, but from the roots and from the my, 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 my DNA on, you know? If I look back- and Not in a feminist way. It's funny because my husband calls me, his feminist flower, because I'm also very sensitive, in tune, sweet, kind, loving, caring. I'm a feminist, but not in this idea of like harsh, you know, it's the opposite. I'm actually very feminine as well, you know? So, you know, in that kind of feminism, you know? Can I ask about your, I mean, before you became a director, you worked with so many great directors. Um, and, yes. you know, including Godard twice, I think. I think your first film was Detective. Yes, that Detective. Was the first film. And then yeah. later on, King Lear, you're in there. Um, but, you know, Linklater, of course, famously, much more recently. Yeah. Uh, Carax. I mean, you know, there's so many. Then I noticed that you actually go to NYU to study directing. Yeah. What was it about that choice that, given that you'd seen the best work, Yeah. What was it about that choice that you thought I, I need? Was it was it wanting to um, psychologically make a break with your past as an actor and your future as a filmmaker? Yeah. Or well, I knew if I wasn't going to school, you know, I couldn't really be taken seriously, especially because I was an actress. You know, I spent also a lot of time working on screenplay and writing with uh, with Kieslowski, You know, who kind of tutor me outside of any school or anything. But Three Colours White. I remember this yes, film. Beautiful. Tremendous yeah. of advice and everything. What and sort of advice? Just we spent many hours talking about what writing was about for film, you know, and, uh, and what direction I wanted to go and about truth and about digging deep, you know, even if it's for comedies, you know, or, or, or at least like digging in a place where I, you know, that I was really profoundly moved by or something. So, you know, we spend a lot of time and about writing and about being inspired by life and not by other films. Also, because he was a big believer in being inspired by observing people, which I do constantly to the point of annoying everyone around me, but, uh, and, and so inquisitive, like I will ask people like a thousand questions, people I meet 
on a taxi or <laughs> a thousand questions. But anyway, I think it's the only way to learn from other people's life. You know, otherwise you just talk about yourself all the time, which I do most of the time, but you still need to know other people as well, you know, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, so, so I needed that break and also to convince myself that I could do it. And the fact that my teacher gave me grade A, which was amazing. I had never had grade A in anything before, <laughs> or maybe philosophy. I was good in philosophy, but that was about it and uh, in school. But uh, suddenly I was like, oh, so I, I'm good at this. Like I, I kind of felt I could maybe do it, but I was not sure. You know how it is. You know, you're 20 years old. You want to. And it's good to go to school because you learn also the certain disciplines, you know, yeah. which is good. Preparing the film and all that. I'm pretty, pretty thorough with how I prepare my films and stuff. Well, you've gone on to be one of the most uh, successful um, NYU directing graduates, so I congratulate <laughs> you on that. Well, there's a few. Actually, there were yeah, a few that, in my that, class that are doing okay, so that yeah, was yeah, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a good school by all yeah. accounts. Yes. Julie Delpy, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Julie Delpy, writer, director and lead actor of the impressive and thought-provoking My Zoe, a film which is out around Australia where cinemas are open next week. And if this conversation raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's Lifeline on 131114. By the way, Delpy's multi-hyphenate skills are on display in an upcoming Netflix series called On The Verge. I haven't seen it yet, but it's about mothers who become mothers later in life, juggling parenthood and career, and uh, she plays a chef. And speaking of her many talents, add composer to the list because even if there is no music to speak of in My Zoe, Julie Delpy actually wrote and performed a piece of music for the end credits. And this is it. This is The Screen Show on ABC Radio National. My name's Jason DeRosso. To ancient Rome now, and specifically the years following the brutal assassination of Julius Caesar, the TV series Domina, which screens on Stan in Australia, tells the story of political intrigue and violence that followed. And it centres on the figure of Livia Drusilla, played by Polish-Italian actress Cassia Smutniak. Uh, a figure who was born into a Republican family 60 years before the birth of Christ and would go on to become Empress of Rome. But it was not a smooth road. Domina is a lavish period soap that doesn't shy away from sex or violence and its first three episodes are photographed sumptuously by Australian cinematographer Denson Baker, who began his career on Australian films back in the 2000s. Films like The Black Balloon, Oranges and Sunshine, and the adoption drama The Waiting City. Denson Baker is coming up. Olivia, where have you been? Out of the house all day and all night. This is no way for a Roman lady. Is that my dress? 
What have you trodden in? I'm sorry. Livia, forgive me, but I've begun to notice all is not well with your marriage. And I have even, on occasion, heard you contradict your husband. Yes, I have. Dear Livia, I beg you to remember your place and consider your conduct. The duty of every Roman woman is to bear and raise children for Rome, to support her husband without question in all things, and to set an example to others of modesty, chastity, and virtue. Of course, Rania, you're right. Denson Baker, welcome to the screen show. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, you were the director of photography on the pilot as well as the first two episodes. Well, the pilot that then becomes episode one of season one of Domino. Um, tell me about how you came on to the project. It was mainly through director Claire McCarthy, who also happens to be my wife. We um, we just finished shooting the series uh, Luminaries in New Zealand. And um, as we always do, when we're getting towards the end of a project, we start talking and looking into what might be the next project. And uh, there was a few floating around and um, the decision happened pretty quickly. We just finished uh, all the post work that needed to be done on the luminaries. And I mean, I, I was sold on Domino just from shooting in Rome, Chinichita Studios and being an ancient Rome story. But um, the more I uh, discussed with Claire, the more fascinated I became with the the whole story of it being these historic figures that are so little mentioned in the history books and really telling um, a lot of these stories that we've seen many times before, but telling it from the perspective of the women and uh, sort of some of the behind the scenes moments within these big parts of history. And I just, I found that so fascinating. So hold on, how come, how come we're not doing this interview with Claire as a, as a duo? It, uh, what, what is she up to at this very moment? She's uh, in the edit suite right now in post-production on a feature, which we just finished uh, shooting called The Colour Room. We wrapped well, only three weeks ago, I guess it was. So she's just getting stuck into her director's cut now. Yep. Yeah. But tell me about, first of all, working at Chinichita Studios. Was that a real geeking out moment for you, walking? Absolutely. Really? Yeah. Tell me what that was like. Well, I mean, just the, the history of the place is just incredible. And I mean, I've seen so many films that have shot there from you know, historic, brilliant Fellini films right through to recent Scorsese stories. There's been so many great classics have been made there. And uh, to walk through those studios and, and through those corridors with that history is just fantastic. The brilliant thing about it is it's got such an industry there that a lot of the crew that we, we were working with were the same crew that had been on a lot of these films that we loved and knew and so lighting department, some of my camera team, grips, the art department particularly, I mean, they had a, such a wealth of experience and knowledge that we were able to draw upon. And to, we would ask, you know, how, how would Vittorio Storaro like this scene? And, uh, and they would you know, give me a few bit of a rundown. Oh, that sounds good. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> and so it was lovely having that kind of experience. Wow, the muscle memory and like electrics and, and grips departments must be amazing. Do you still, because Fellini, I remember, spoke about and portrayed, but also wrote about that culture around Chinichita and the kind of very Roman working class type of cohort that would end up being in the electrics department or working as grips and so forth. Do you see some of those evidence of that old culture there? Some of the old guys still sort of coming in and and have they passed down the trade from father to son that well i mean Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm being male centric here but it, i guess it still mm. usually is quite dominated by men over women 
Yeah, well, not not strictly. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of lot of women working there, but particularly in the okay. lighting and camera department, but art department, costume. I mean, we had an incredible costume designer, um, Gabriella Pascucci, who's she worked with Fellini through to doing you know Terry Gilliam's films there and through to I mean, so many great films. But um, talking about that handing down from generation to generation, the gaffer that I worked with was the son of the gaffer who worked with Vittorio Storaro on Bertolucci's projects. And, you know, so he'd grown up as a kid on set. And so he knew that those studios were like his, uh, almost his home, his second home. So, yeah, it's a real, it's a real industry that people will live in. And they all knew where the, the best restaurant was down the street, where the best cabanara was. And there was a real culture there and around, around the studios, not just the studios themselves, but all the surrounding area. Okay, so let's speak about Domina now, this series set in ancient Rome. In that very tumultuous period after the death of Caesar or the, the assassination of Caesar, and, you know, it's about power plays and it's about, there's a figure of a woman centrally to this. So it's um, a view of Rome taken from the point of view of, of this woman, Livia. I was very impressed by the overall look in terms of its palette, this kind of very rich but quite subdued, almost diffuse lighting whether that's moonlight or whether that's kind of low sunlight coming in through the windows of a Roman palace or a Roman residence. Tell me a little bit about your influence in terms of the colour palette and the look of the series. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there is, I mean, there is a, a lot of collaboration between costume designer and the production designer and the director, myself, when it comes to the colour palette. But we had a lot of discussions and we looked at a number of references and um, one of the first places we started was actually going to the remains of what are the the villas where the story's set. And Livia's uh, and Gaius uh, Augustus's villas still partly standing. I mean, they're falling apart, but they've still got uh, mosaics and uh, frescoes in there, which sort of became a kicking off point for for the colour palette because they're obviously what Livia liked herself. We could tell from just what she, how she decorated her villa. And then also just that approach to lighting, a lot of it came from just a philosophy based on how we saw the architecture of the time and that uh, Roman villas were built with this large aperture at the top where it would allow sunlight in, but yet it would have it'd be almost fortress-like in its exterior walls with very few, if any, windows for security reasons or for um, you know, stability and for structural integrity, I guess. But So it meant that there was always a big shaft of hot light coming through the middle, but there's a lot of dark rooms that were only being filled with light that's being bounced around. Inside that, that's always the first go-to place with me with my um, lighting approaches. If it's a period drama, what were the the types of lighting that people used in that time and it's ancient Rome. It was all braziers and fire pits and oil lamps. So that was how we approached our lighting for all of that. The interiors are always quite dark because that always kept them cool as well because in, in Rome it can get very hot so they kept the rooms dark. So, you know, there's practical reasons for how, why the, the light was the way it was also. But, yeah, we wanted to design a colour palette that sort of hinted a little bit at the, um, there's a little bit of menace there as well. You know, it's a time of war and we wanted to feel there was a little bit of, you know, bit of danger and it's a, it's a dirty, backstabbing kind of world, but also opulent, luxurious villa as well. So we wanted to create that feel as well. I was watching Domina thinking, how large must Game of Thrones loom in people's minds now when they're setting out making anything that's a bit costume dramery and especially you know it's it's set either in the ancient world or as a fantasy piece i think domino sort of sets a tone that is a little bit reminiscent of game of thrones early in a sense it's quite a sort of bold and 
you know, violent show as well, very stylish. But uh, I don't know, there, there are a lot of dials turned up to 11 in, I guess, what we see and what people do to each other. Do you think that Game of Thrones was a bit of a game changer in terms of what people expect from period drama or yeah. fantasy? Absolutely. Yeah. And in so many ways as well. And a big one is production value too. There's a, there's an expectation that a TV show has got to have high production value or it's just not going to be worth watching. We weren't referencing Game of Thrones. I mean, it's a little bit hard not to, as you say, when it's ancient times and sex and violence. And we had Game of Thrones actors in there as well. Liam Cunningham among, among a couple of others. Yeah. I mean, it's, it set the bar. So you've got to you know, try and hover as close to that bar as you as you can. I mean, Game of Thrones budgets were were huge compared to what most other television series can afford. When you and your partner Claire McCarthy sign on to make the pilot for this series, how much pressure is there when you're the first kind of creative team to be on a series like this? I mean, presumably, even though there's not much sense that it goes from pilot to something else, but presumably the pilot is this first standalone sort of example of your work and, and your vision. What's that feeling like? Yeah, well, the the like Claire is referred to as the setup director and part of the, the role of that setup director is to make a lot of the decisions that are going to set the tone and the, the, the whole style for every director and DP that comes afterwards. So we, I mean, we were considered the first block um, duo. So we we had three episodes, which as a block, you're not necessarily just shooting episode one, then two, then three. We're overlapping within that schedule as whenever, as it was needed. Within our block, we went from episode two to three, where all the cast, it leaps forward. I think it's 12 years, might have been more. Um, and so, and then in new villas that needed to be, we, we built, some epic sets that needed to then be turned around and turned into new sets. A lot of that had to be worked out. And in my preparation, I did a lot of lighting tests and, and approached a, a look and a style that I could set up the the lighting for that uh, that set. And then every DP that came in afterwards, they could make changes if they wanted to, but it was essentially lit and ready to go. They could flick on the lights and it was in a state that it was pretty close to ready to shoot. Our responsibility was set up to set up the tone and the style of the whole series. And we had to, as part of that process, Claire, myself, production designer, costume designer, had to present a full package to the Sky Network and to um, uh, Epics as well and, and various others that were involved to say, this is how we see the show, this is what it's going to look like. We presented references and had a full presentation for them to sign off on and, and agree that that's how they wanted us to approach it. It, it sounds all very boardroomy and sort of corporate-like. How do you – is that what it is like? I mean, how do you find yourself well, – those meetings take place in a boardroom, but it's still – a lot of it is – I mean, we would have a – we had a projector set up. We'd be presenting visuals. Uh, Gabriella Pascucci brought in mannequins that were wearing the uh, – the costumes and the production designer had built models of the sets. So it was a, you know, it was a full you know, look and a presentation. There wasn't a lot of, no, we don't like that. Can you do something else instead? It was more, um, okay, we get what you're going for and we like what we're seeing. I mean, I don't know what would have happened if they all walked in and thought we had terrible ideas and they wanted it to change. Maybe we would have got fired probably and they would have brought other people on. But um, Have you ever had that kind of just complete not connecting with the higher ups on a project when you've pitched your ideas, when you've presented what your vision? Um, yes, sometimes, but like the experiences I've had might be after two days of shooting and then uh, someone comes out on set and they're worried that it's looking too dark or what are you guys planning on doing here? And they haven't seen an edit yet or 
a graded um, version. A lot of people got that. I mean, if you want to talk about Game of Thrones, it was after Game of Thrones that a lot of studios or, and, and networks got very worried about shows being too dark, like as in visually dark. That's right. Well, there um, was that, that that infamous episode in the last season, I think it was, which got people talking about <laughs> which I thought looked brilliant. I loved it. Did it you? Well, this is interesting. Yeah. You actually thought that was good. I mean, a lot of people would argue that, you know, people don't have ideal viewing conditions at home and it was perhaps too that's, dark that's for a domestic space. Right but but yeah. you you thought it was good. You would you would stand by the cinematographer on that episode? Absolutely. I mean, I do have to say I watched it on a on a nice 4K TV with uh, in with good sound system and nice uh, viewing conditions in a darkened room. So I was seeing it in the way that uh, I'm sure the, the DP and the colorist and everyone involved with the visuals had intended. But that's the tricky thing. And that's that's probably a conversation I have on pretty much every project is uh, how dark is too dark. We don't want it to be overlit. Um, how's this going to look on some people's TVs if they're watching it in their kitchen while they're making lunch uh, in a brightly lit room and um, just all the all the things that uh, you just you, you kind of do need to have a bit of a safety net because you you don't want the network getting all the the letters saying your show's too dark we don't want to watch it anymore yeah but you also don't want it to look over lit and boring or, or wrong or because I mean I, I hear many conversations of people saying I don't really like that cinematographers work because they overlight or it looks flat but yeah that's sometimes that's the kind of lighting you need to do if it's if you want to appeal to those that are watching it on a computer screen or an iPad or something that's not optimum not but that i mean that, and that's also a decision that i have to make as a dp am i making it for that broad an audience and for the people watching it on their phones or you have to pick hold on were you asking yourself this question five years ago uh probably not no because it was more the biggest question was uh like i want it to look great on a cinema screen but it also still needs to look good on the back of a chair of a flight in a in a, in a plane which were that was probably the worst conditions that a, a film would ever uh, ever have which doesn't seem to be such a problem those screens have all improved now yeah and it's probably true we've in the last sort of five odd years we've become much more i don't know varied as audiences around the world in where and how we consume visual content i've got to call it content now <laughs> but you yeah. know that's right and and that and that has <laughs> well, a direct that, impact yeah. on what on how, on how you need to think about what you're yeah what you're doing when you go to work well, that's right. Yeah. And, and it's true. I mean, when you say it does sound a bit boardroomy that those kind of um, pitch sessions, I mean, there are, there is a, there are a lot of people that just do see it as, as content and it's a product that's got to be delivered and there's customers, consumers, there's consumers who have got to you know be happy with it. And if they're not, they're going to turn it off. And um, I mean, there's considerations just with an edit, like it, um, I've heard, I've been in rooms where a producer would say, it's too slow here. This is the moment when the kids are checking their phones. You've got to um, keep their interest. And so we've got to cut to a bit of action. We need to see something that's going to, you know, stop them from switching channel or going on to the next thing, which which is a real shame that that becomes what's dictating your choices um, rather than, you know, creative or story reasons. Where is the good place then for you as a director of photography? I mean, there are all these pressures that we're talking about and commercial pressures especially that can impinge upon you and your vision and your creativity, what do you run to or what do you hope for on a project to kind of make it worthwhile for you? Is it a strong producer that's a kind of paladin, that's a kind of advocate, or is it just working on cinema and working on great 
films that have maybe a bit more of an independence to them? Yeah, well, I think both really. I mean, a, a strong and passionate producer who uh, is going to uh, be supportive of um, of a vision. I mean, it is a lot of it is creativity by committee. And um, when you've got a large group and particularly people who are more concerned about whether, you know, the kids are going to tune in or change the channel, um, than they are about whether we're doing great storytelling or spending the money in the in the right places. Yeah, sometimes decisions can be made which aren't necessarily the best for the project, and and I think that's where that strong producer leadership can really step in and say, well, look, if we what we really need is a is a really strong vision that's seen through from beginning to end, rather than everyone's opinions and vision getting involved, that's starting to make it into a real mixed bag and a mess. Because I mean, they, once you start chopping it up and pulling it to pieces because you're, you're worried about certain small demographic of your audience, then you start to lose a lot more audience because it's it's just lost a lot of its integrity and its vision. On ABC Radio yeah. National, you're listening to the Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso, and I'm in conversation with the Australian cinematographer Denson Baker, who has just lensed. Well, he's been working a lot recently, but what you can see of his now what's just come down the pipe as it were is um domina it's a series set in ancient rome it's a tv series currently airing on stan in australia and it's a sky atlantic and sky italia co-production and as we've spoken about you you shot it in italy largely at the sound stages of cinecittà i want to ask you about working with your partner claire mccarthy who's a director and directed the three eps you worked on here but you've worked on other tv as you've mentioned before and feature films with her what's that relationship like and i want to ask specifically who lines up the shot does she frame and then you light is it a mixture of both things? I mean, because often there's an interesting demarcation, isn't there, between just how visual the director is and where that line uh, is drawn between what the director wants and what the cinematographer then has to do. Yeah, well, we often will line up the shots together. We've got a lot of pre-visualisation tools that we use, ranging from you know, an app on my iPad, Artemis, which can emulate the different lenses and we can we can frame up our our shots to how we want to shoot. And so it's a conversation and a collaboration, but we'll start very early on in pre-production with how we see the vision for it. I'll take a lot of photography during the location scouting and the pre-process, which then becomes a guide for a lot of our framing and often becomes photographic storyboards for how we're going to shoot the thing. We also, we watch a lot of stuff together and the fact that we've worked together so many times and for so long now that we we've got a, a very good shorthand we know what each other likes we've got each other's back and we also challenge each other quite a bit too which is a good thing so um it would be when we we're starting a new project we may sort of think you know on this one we want to do something quite different to what we've ever done before and we might set a few visual challenges or she or just the way she wants to approach her directing style or how it might be edited and so then we're we're kind of really pushing each other to to do better work. Just finally, is there? A, I mean, have you become a Rome ancient Roman buff after all of this, or were you before? Or yeah, well, I was I was before, and I think that was one of the big draw cards was just to be able to immerse ourselves in this incredible world and this amazing history. And we had a great apartment right in the center of Rome, and every opportunity we had would go to museums or to ruins or to you know just really want to experience as much of the culture and get a real understanding of of the time and uh, that was the big eye-opener for me and that's why I actually really love doing period productions is just really putting yourself in the 
you know, in the shoes of people of a, of a completely different time, um, so different to ours, and to be able to attempt to imagine what uh, the day-to-day life was, we really did want to capture that. And not just who, your emperors and your empresses, but also from your the kids, the people on the street, the shop owners, the slaves within the, within a house wanted to really, what was their day-to-day life like and can we represent that somewhat? So that was that was interesting. I think we like we really researched and learned a lot more than what we were ever able to put on the screen. Yeah, I loved it. Well, Denson Baker, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the screen show. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. It's been wonderful. Cinematographer Denson Baker. Domina is available to watch on Stan. The first rule of power is survival. But still it comes to me, even now, when I'm alone in the dark. The scent of winter woods. Feel of icy stone. Sudden burst of blood. Because however many men you kill, and I have had to kill many, you never forget the first. That's almost it for me for another week here at The Screen Show. But before I go, I'll mention a couple of films that are worth your time, though I'm a little bit mixed on both of them. The first is from Argentina. It's a heist comedy called Heroic Losers, and it stars uh, Ricardo Darin as the leader of a motley group of small-town battlers who decide to rob a local corrupt politician after Argentina's economic crash of 2001. An affable, well-acted, character-based comedy about small town eccentrics and misfits but it does drag a little more than it should that's heroic losers and from new zealand comes cousins an intimate but also epic drama about three maori women whose lives echo the traumas political struggles and passions of new zealand's first nations people over the last several decades it's a very well-intentioned film about some very moving themes it reminded me a little bit of rachel perkins adaptation of louis nara's radiance from the late 90s but i think as important a story as this is cousins would have been better off as a tv series to allow room for more character nuance and detail but you can check it out in cinemas from this week now if you're in melbourne and you can't get to a cinema your streaming options for catching up on films at home have expanded to include a couple of local initiatives one is from the australian center for the moving image the other is from lido cinemas both offer options to watch even quite recent films at home uh, so definitely worth checking out that's it from me i'm jason DeRosso. i'll see you next week with another edition of the screen show You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.